Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for choosing The Next Track today. This is episode number 76. If you haven't visited us yet, we live at thenexttrack.com, where you can find all of our back episodes, uh, rigorous show notes, show comments, feedback form, and so on. If you'd like to get in touch with us, that's the way to go, thenexttrack.com. So we often chat before or after we record an episode about music we're listening to or about what we want to talk about on the show. And a few months ago, I think both of us coincidentally brought up the topic of disco music. You know, this music from our late teens in the 1970s that we really loved to hate back then. And last week we decided it might be interesting to do an episode to talk about disco music, to, to look back at it, and to see if we actually appreciate it now, 40 years on. You and I were both in junior high school and high school during the disco era. And I know I did not care for disco. My friends and I, we all liked the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith and bands like that. And we thought disco music was kind of silly. Um, we didn't go out dancing. Uh, we weren't interested in the fashion of it. We thought it was just... Um, just frivolous music and it didn't have the the visceral appeal that the rock music uh that we listened to had but later as i got into radio and became more agnostic about music genres and formats i began to see the appeal of disco and uh it'll be fun to talk about that today what you point out about the sociological aspect of disco is something that i definitely want to discuss but i want to start by establishing the quintessential disco sound now, you know how the wire cutter does these reviews and they said, why you should trust me. I've spent 80 hours testing cat litter, things like that. Well, I have spent 16 hours this weekend listening to disco and watching movies and documentaries. Whoa. And, wow. <laughs> and, I've, and I've gotten it down to its core criteria. It has to have a 4-4 time signature. It has to have a deep bass, particularly a driving bass. You often hear the bass drum on either two or four beats. It's got to have strings. Or horns, but strings are better. It's got to have that constant hi-hat, but sometimes you can have clapping to replace the hi-hat. Or that Nile Rodgers rhythm guitar thing. Well, but that's another essential one is the chicken scratch guitar. Yeah. Now, not every disco song has to have all of these things, but those are the quintessential disco song. In listening to a 96-track playlist on Apple Music, which I'll link to in the show notes of disco... Um, eight hours of disco in that playlist. Well, that explains the mirror ball behind you and your polyester suit you have on. <laughs> it's got some good songs in it. Yeah, it does. Um, but I think I found the one song that represents disco music in its in its ideal form, and it's Sheik's Good Times. Good choice. That's iconic. It's Sheik's extraordinary musicianship. It has probably the most influential bass riff in the history of music by Bernard Edwards. Um, this is the bass riff that goes doom. Dum, dum, do, 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 which the Sugar Hill Gang later used on Rapper's Delight, which was a um, an influence for Queen to do... Um, another One Bites the Dust. Another One Bites the Dust. And it's an extraordinary bass riff. He is, an ex he is a great bassist. It's got clapping instead of hi-hat. It's got... It's not actually that chicken scratch guitar, but, but Niles Rogers has this sort of chord comping, as they say in jazz. Yeah. It's playful. He has some playful strumming technique that dances around the beat and adds a, a lot of that high-end syncopation that a, a hi-hat would have delivered. Exactly, yeah. And and there's brilliant musicianship in that band. You've got the great chorus singing the, 
the hook, and you've got you've got the wonderful momentum in the song as it goes through. And the original version is three and a half minutes, but you got to listen to the eight minute, twelve inch release because that's where they really get down, and that's where you can really imagine what it's like to be you know, hot and sweaty in a club at two in the morning and Saturday night. I think that's an important component of disco music, the discotheque, the dance floor, the club. Without it, well, let me just tell you, we back in the late 90s, just at the turn of the century, I worked for a company in Rhode Island that uh, had several radio stations and we had bought another one. It was a very low wattage uh, radio station, not a lot of coverage, but it reached the beaches. And uh, the, the, the format that it currently had was smooth jazz. And we thought, well, we got to do something about that right Anything's away. Anything's better than that. Exactly. So we decided to do disco. And we did all disco. And it was great. It was, the people who went to the beach loved it. It was during the summertime. It was fabulous. Got a lot of buzz. People really liked it for the summer. When summer was over and the fun was over, the nostalgia kind of waned, and we ended up having to change the format again to something else that was a little more substantive. The nostalgia of disco didn't work. There was no lifestyle to support it, so it just became a boring nostalgia format. Well, it's interesting to look at the origins of disco, the sociological aspects of it, and, and I don't want to get all you know academic about it, but I'll link to a BBC documentary on YouTube, very poor quality, called The Joy of Disco that talks about the origins of disco. I grew up in Queens, New York, so I was sort of ground zero for all of this. Disco originally started after the Stonewall riots of 1969 in Greenwich Village. In 1970, uh, people started having these loft parties and with dance music, and it was a way for gay people to get together. Previous to that, it was illegal for two men to dance together. So they, this was a sort of outsider music. This was an underground music in a way. And it built on existing soul music and rhythm and blues, but it changed over time to become a music which, interestingly, was designed for a specific mating ritual. Yep. People dancing, <laughs> people dancing in a club, and they want to get together, and they want to go home together. Very ritualistic. This is what you did. You went to a discotheque, and it enabled you uh, the opportunity to... to you know, meet other people and, and get close to them. And, and, and it is sort of tribal in a way in that it's, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of sexual energy, there's a lot of, uh, you know, just a lot of vivaciousness uh, that this music brings out that you, you can't get by listening to it on a playlist. Uh, you really have to, uh, you really have to experience, you know, the club. The, the group experience. Yeah, it's a group experience. Exactly. Yes. I, I don't remember who it was, but someone said once, all you need for a party is two people and a Barry White album. <laughs> yeah. Now, sure. obviously, in a club, you have a greater choice of people. So, you know, it makes for better parties. Early disco, musically, isn't that different from later disco. But what changed was the addition of the, the stronger beat, the string sections that came in. The, the sculpting of the sound was a lot different as, as years went on. Before we decided to do this show, I'd been listening to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On last week. And... This doesn't have the beat that disco would have, but it has almost everything else. It has that that flowing, those flowing melodies, that soul sound that you could dance to. But the difference with disco is that the beat became really, really heavy. A regimented 120 beats per minute. Regimented. Okay, yeah. And one of the other changes was that you started having DJs who, instead of talking between the songs, 
were segueing from one to another with two turntables and they had to match the beats. So there was almost a continuous flow of music. Right. Even before they made extended mixes, the DJs would make their own extended mixes by having two versions of the single and just playing the instrumental part over and over and over again. Finally, producers got the idea, hey, maybe we ought to make longer versions, which is what started happening. So disco was relatively under the radar in the early 1970s, and then it's probably around 76 and 77 that it started becoming popular. I went back and I watched Saturday Night Fever this weekend. And by the way, I forgot how bad that movie is in terms of production and acting, and it's a really low-budget movie. But I forgot that that was only released in December of 1977. Um, I thought it had been earlier in the year. I, I don't know about you, but 1977 is one of those years for me that's pivotal. If you just look at movies, we had Star Wars, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the Grateful Dead movie, the song remains the same. Well, music in general, in 1977, there was a huge amount of music released that year, across the board. And and culturally, the, the things we had in New York, we had this blackout on July 13th, um, 1977. It was a terribly hot summer. We had the Son of Sam killer at that time. And this is why I think my friend John was probably into disco in 77, because when the Son of Sam killer was going around, apparently he was targeting teenage girls with shoulder-length blonde hair. So all the teenage girls with shoulder-length blonde hair I knew cut their hair. And I think this is the same summer that my friend John went to this local dance school and took dance lessons so he could go to the disco. He got his powder blue polyester suit and his, you know, silk shirt so that he, he would open down to the 11th button. John was quite muscle-bound. He, he was a sort of leather jacket guy. But he converted himself into this disco monster. And he would go there every weekend. Um, it's interesting because disco didn't just involve going to the club. It was a huge dress-up thing as well. Like, not unlike a lot of other things. I mean, you know, the punk movement, a lot of that was getting dressed up and going and, and acting silly in a club too. So there was a certain similarity there, but it, obviously two totally different sorts of music. Um, but yeah, you had to, if you bought into the glamour of it, that was... That was really a big part of, of the whole movement. Yeah. I was never into the dressing up. I never liked dancing, as you said earlier. My musical tastes were defined more by the music than the cultural background of, in this case, of the club. So when you see Saturday Night Fever, though, you, you see that this is uh, something that's already established. The movie was based on an article in the New York Times that some guy had written. It turned out that he had made up the character that didn't exist. But the, this movement of people going to dance clubs was there. It wasn't, Saturday Night Fever could have almost been a documentary for a lot of people I knew. It took place in Brooklyn, whereas I grew up in Queens. Uh, so they were Italian-Americans in Brooklyn. They were Jewish in my neighborhood, but there wasn't that much of a difference. So Saturday Night Fever is, other than being a bad movie, it's misogynistic, it's racist, it's violent. I don't think you'd get a movie made like that now, but it is probably pretty true of the atmosphere you know, some of those racial slurs that people say in the movie, I heard my friends say the same kind of things. The homophobic attitude was not uncommon. I don't think us in the, the boroughs saw disco as a gay movement, or at least the origins of disco as gay until the village people came around. And what's interesting, in one of these documentaries I watched, someone said that people seeing the village people didn't realize they were gay. Frankly? If they were not Americans, maybe they didn't realize they were gay, but I think any American would have picked that out right away. 
I remember seeing them on like uh, variety shows and things like that as a kid, and there was no question in my mind that they were gay. I mean, they were singing about the YMCA, for goodness sake. Yeah, and Macho Man. I think the thing that people liked about the Village People is that they were disarmingly charming. Yes. They they were winking at the audience yes. the whole time. So we knew, and they knew that we knew, and we knew that they knew that we knew. But at the same time, I don't remember that they, or or even disco itself, actually raised public consciousness about homosexuality all that much, at least with my crowd. Of more concern to us was that there was less live music at the clubs we like to, to hang out at. Um, it was cheaper for a, a club manager to hire a DJ with his record player than it was to hire four or five uh, musicians to come in and play. So there was a lot more disco, and we thought it was tiring music. It was repetitive. It was not interesting. Um, and it wasn't fun to drink to. So right, and all your friends, they wanted to play 12-bar blues with three chords, which was <laughs> repetitive and tiring and uninteresting, but it was the music you liked. Well, I'll grant you that irony, but um, I think one of the things that we liked, we, of course, we like blues and rock and, and one four fives and that sort of thing, but we also like the improvisational aspect of live music. But on the other hand, I mean, we were expending energy at the clubs our way, and people at discotheques were expending energy their way. And oozing pheromones. <laughs> yeah. But one thing I can tell you, though, is that we didn't want to go to a club and have to listen to records. We wanted to hear live music. Well, one of the things I remember people mentioning was that disco music was overproduced. And this is a criticism you get of a lot of pop music today, too, that it's overproduced, that it's, you know, overdub after overdub. And we're part of this generation that was still looking at music as something made by musicians, not by producers. Well, that's another interesting, uh, ironic facet for us about disco in that a lot of the music that came shortly thereafter was heavily influenced by disco and that kind of production. I mean, just a few years later into the 80s, you've got the, the post-punk new romance music of bands like um, Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran and Ultravox and Visage. And, and you've got the Hacienda and Manchester. It was a disco with music provided by New Order and Happy Mondays who were heavily influenced by New York disco. House music is obviously a descendant of disco, and, and in New York itself, you've got this punky no-wave dance music. It's all music that I really like, but it descends from this kind of cheesy disco that I didn't like. One of the things that you can notice, again, I don't want to talk about this too much from a sociological aspect, but I think it's really important to the, the rise and fall of disco. If, if you look at the early punk years, we're talking 76, 77 Maybe a little bit earlier if you go back to like Iggy Pop and, and the Stooges and all that, but that didn't spread that much. What you see is this attitude of no future, and that's exactly the attitude that John Travolta's character has in Saturday Night Fever. It's, it's exactly the feelings that a lot of people I knew had at that time. New York City had almost gone bankrupt in the mid-70s. It was dirty. You didn't go to certain places at night. You didn't go to Central Park when it was dark. You never went to Times Square, and it always astounds me when I see Times Square on TV now, how it's become a tourist attraction. So we were living in a city that was pretty dark, and the, the feeling of no future really corresponded, whether it was the what eventually became the uptown music of disco and the downtown music of, as you said, No Wave and, and all of the you know talking heads, the, the early, the sort of punk, post-punk, CBGB's, Max's Kansas City stuff. There was this shared feeling of no future. And on the one hand, the punks seemed to glorify in it 
And the disco people seem to just want to be living in a fantasy where they could forget yeah. about it. Well, it's understandable. It's very working class, too. It was very working class sort of music for a long time. Um, and so people would work their jobs during the week and then let it all loose on the weekend. I, I think the difference with the difference with punk is it was not so overtly sexual as disco was. You went to a punk concert to hear the music, even though you went to meet people at the same time, whereas you went to a disco to be a peacock and show off. I think they both have this this sense of there's an expulsion of energy because, yes, you are technically dancing on the dance floor to disco, but at a punk show, you might be suddenly pulled or thrust into a mosh pit where you would be uh, compelled to pogo or do whatever else. Uh, so there was a, a lot of energy uh, that was being vented at, at these things. Yeah, pogoing is relatively easy. I can actually do that. Oh, great. <laughs> Whereas part of the whole disco experience was that, just like Travolta's character, Tony Romano, you had to be a good dancer to be respected. And he was a good dancer and he spent the time and he learned the moves, like my friend John, who went to this dance school that was on the corner of the block where we used to hang out. There was a bowling alley and a pizzeria. And we'd look up at the windows and laugh at him while he was in there doing his dance lessons. But, you know, you get what you pay for, right? Well, I hope he got what he paid for. So the music. The music is, I mean... Uh, over this weekend, I've been listening to a lot of this music and I'm thinking, damn, there's some great songs from back then. You know, the wide range of stuff from Chic to the, the, the songs that Giorgio Moroder did with Donna Summer to the sort of late disco where everyone was getting on the disco train, like the Rolling Stones with Miss You and Blondie with Heart of Glass and, and even that Rod Stewart song, Do You Think I'm Sexy, which I wouldn't call that a great song, but... And, and interestingly, that was those three songs were 1978. So this is after Saturday Night Fever, which just exploded and became the most popular thing for the next year. I will never forget sitting in my college dining hall and hearing the disco version of the Star Wars theme for the first time come over the overhead. And I remember sitting next to my roommate going, do you hear that? And it was, I don't think jumping the shark was even an expression then, but... It had jumped the shark at that point because then you you could put you could put four on the floor and a two and a four snare beat on anything and it was disco. I think in one of the documentaries there's an Ethel Merman yeah uh, disco album. I mean anything it became so commercialized yeah uh, after that after Saturday Night Fever that uh, it, some of it was just plain ridiculous. Well, it's funny how quickly it died out. Now I'll I'll link in the show notes to an article. This is in The Guardian in 2009, and it's called Why Disco Sucks Sucked. There was a Disco Sucks campaign in 1979, and The Guardian article says it had racist and homophobic undertones, and 30 years on has proven to be a resolute failure. Now, I didn't have a Disco Sucks t-shirt, and if I had a car, which I didn't, I wouldn't have had a Disco Sucks bumper sticker. I knew a lot of people who felt that Disco sucked, but none of us felt that way because of any attitude toward race or, or, or gay people. We simply didn't have that. Now, to, to be quite honest, in 1979, I lived in the West Village uh, for about a year, about two blocks from Christopher Street. And disco was just, you heard it everywhere. You know, this was the early days of the boombox. So one thing that, that disco was able to do, it was able to spread itself in the street for the first time. I never got the impression that disco was specifically gay. Its origins came from gay culture, but it wasn't gay music later than that. And I certainly didn't see it as a race thing. Now, the people in Detroit where this event in the summer of 79 took place might have seen things a little bit differently. So this radio DJ, Steve Dahl, 
He got fired from his radio job because the station was changing to a disco format. So he wanted to do a thing to get a lot of attention for himself. And he wanted to get a lot of people to bring their disco albums and burn them. And instead of about 20,000 fans as they would get for a White Sox game, and it was a double header, so this was event was taking place between the two games, 59,000 people turned up. Thousands of them went crazy on the field. They blew up a bunch of these albums. They had to forfeit the second game. The White Sox had to forfeit the second game because they couldn't play. The field was destroyed. Uh, I honestly don't even remember hearing about this back then. I remember hearing about it later because I got into radio and Steve Dahl became pretty famous after that. Um, it started out as a, as a prank and I guess he just tapped into something. I don't think that they meant to encourage, um, you know, this, this, this violence, obviously, but it was really a lot of angry radio listeners who were just pissed off that their radio station was flipping from one format to a disco format. But I don't know how they... How they pushed it. Well, maybe the way he was promoting it, but I certainly didn't get that impression um, when I was listening to disco. We just associated it with a certain type of person who wanted to go to a club and show off. Yeah, I didn't mind it as dance music, and, and I was actually in, indifferent to it as far as it being dance music. Yeah. But when it starts to permeate everything from TV advertisings, TV show themes, movie themes, uh, things like that, it starts to wear a little thin, and then you start to feel a resentment that, well, what happened to you know, interesting music. Where where did all that go? This stuff is just being cranked out like Hamburg. And uh, that's one of the problems that I had with it. So I think before we close, it, it would be nice to maybe just talk about a few of these songs that stand out. Back in the day, as I said, in 1979, 1980, I was hearing this on boomboxes, and you'd hear this in malls and restaurants. It was, it was, you'd hear it by osmosis. And I'm familiar with most of these songs that, you know, I've heard for 40 years. God, it's been 40 years. Think about it. And, and I'm familiar with all these songs and, and really seriously listening to them makes me realize that some of these are real classics. Obviously, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack is the first place to begin. And what's interesting is that the Bee Gees did not plan to write disco music. They had been writing these songs and they had a, a beat to them. Um, they got approached by the producer of the Saturday Night Fever movie who was looking for some new songs. And they said, sure, take them. We don't care. And then... You know, it became, as I think it was Robin Gibb in this documentary said, you know, the best-selling soundtrack album of all time sold 50 million copies. Yeah, I think, and also at the time, bands did not realize that hitching a ride on a soundtrack album would be, you know, advantageous. There just weren't that many popular soundtracks unless it was a, a movie musical, which <laughs> this turned out to be, I suppose, in a yeah. way. But I mean, you know, The Sound of Music sold a lot of records, but just... Contributing music to a movie soundtrack was no guarantee of a hit. No. I'll put a link in the show notes to a Rolling Stone article of the best disco songs of all time. Maybe we can just go through all 10 of them really quickly. Sure. So number 10 is Sheik's Le Freak, which is, by all means, you know, it's just like that good time song. It's got everything there. Um, it's got the bass groove. It's got the rhythm. Number nine is the Bee Gees Night Fever, which is certainly one of the you know, one of the five hit singles from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. I don't think that's a very memorable one of the of the five. But. Thelma Houston, Don't Leave Me This Way. I had forgotten about that, but of course, once I started playing it, yeah. yeah, I remember that. It's huge, yeah. Um, the Bee Gees, You Should Be Dancing, eh, not that good. But The Tramps, Disco Inferno. 
it's like a 10 minute song on the saturday night fever soundtrack that is that is just a groove that's awesome oh yeah listen to me great hook great production love it then at number five comes the rolling stones with miss you which kind of surprises me because that to me is a sort of me too song that's a very not a disco song and i i maybe after 40 years people can look at that and say that's a disco song but it's really just it's just riding the coattails of of the fad at the time. Well, it's got the hi hat and it's got the bass rhythm, but other than that, I don't see it as disco. And including it in the, a list of top ten, I'm I'm dubious of it. But sure, why not if it's there? If it's what people think disco is, I suppose that's telling. Too. Well, it's what they think it is now. Yeah. But a lot of the people voting probably weren't around back then, so they didn't see it the same way. The only time I saw the Stones was in 1981, and I'm not sure if they had another album out after Some Girls when I saw them, but obviously that was one of the songs that they played. Donna Summer's Last Dance, but then the real one is I Feel Love. That should be number one, because that's that's the one where Giorgio Moroder figured out that bass pattern. In fact, it, I, it's one of my favorite things. I go, do 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 do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. That's in everything. <laughs> yeah. That riff is in everything. And, and he even says in the documentary, the BBC documentary, that it's all over the place. And, and if he sued everyone for copyright infringement, he'd be, you know, mega rich, although he'd probably mega rich anyway. But that's, that to me is the most groundbreaking disco song because it took the electronica of groups like Kraftwerk that weren't very well known or even Vangelis, who was doing things with the sequencers, and it brought it to not only the sort of working class public in the club environment, but it also included this almost orgasmic singing from Donna Summer, which was really quite revolutionary. It is all synthetic. It's, it's, I think it was one of the first major hits that was completely synthesizer, which was unusual because people were used to hearing strings and they were used to hearing Nile Rodgers sort of, you know, chinky chink guitar. And this didn't have any of that. It just had the synthetic, uh, the synthetic impressionism. Yeah of those sounds uh and it was the first time you actually heard it and it wasn't robotic it was very sensuous and it was very thrilling and it, but it was also very futuristic yes I, yes I think the first time i heard it i could immediately feel that this was a music of tomorrow and not a music of yesterday it was one of those things that the, that particular song changed music a great deal it was a huge influence on a lot of british uh synth pop bands huge influence so the second most popular song here is gloria Gaynor's i will survive and I never really thought of that as much as a disco song because it's got all this, you know, girl power stuff to it. But when I was living in France in 1998, that was the theme song of the French uh, national soccer team. This is the year that the World Cup was held in France and that they beat Brazil in the final. So we just heard it on TV constantly and it just got played out. I, I think she's a great singer, but I don't think that's necessarily the best song. And the, the most popular one is Staying Alive, which is, you know, the first song in, that you hear in the movie under the credits. And if anything is emblematic of that period, it's Staying Alive. It is emblematic of the period, but I still don't think it's emblematic of disco. Um, no, and, and I think Sheik's Good Times is far more emblematic, yeah. as I mentioned earlier. Musically, yeah. it has all the musical elements. Yep. And it's I think it's better musically. And you can dance um, to it. <laughs> I, I've never been a fan of the the the, the falsetto voice that um, the Bee Gees used there. Which one of them sang in the falsetto? I believe they all sang falsetto at various points, but yeah. um, the lead singer was Barry, right? I don't know. I never remember which gib was which. The, the Seven Dwarves and the Bee Gees I have trouble <laughs> with the names of. In any case, I think it's fair to say that 
I have a better appreciation of disco now that I'm looking back on it in an attempt to understand what I lived through. I don't regret that I didn't enjoy it back then because as we both said, it was a cultural thing. We, we didn't go to clubs to dance. I didn't have the money to buy the clothes anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but musically, the influence is extraordinary. You can't hear, you, you can't swing a cat without hearing disco in music today. Hmm, kind of disco-y there. Uh, it is time now to present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you going to be listening to? For my next track this week, I wanted to get an antidote to all this disco music I've been listening to. And I did some searching on Apple Music, and it was really interesting. I looked up some albums of like 78 and 79, and then you might also be interested in, and I found some things I hadn't listened to in ages, like Martha and the Muffins, Echo Beach, like Early Killing Joke, Perubu. Uh, you know, my musical taste back then went more toward the avant-garde. But the album that I've settled on, I've listened to it twice and it's going on as soon as we're finishing here, is the first album by the Lounge Lizards. No musician in New York captured the New York sound of the late 70s, even though this album was released in 81, it was recorded in 1980. But that sort of grit of New York, the no future, is just perfect with John Lurie's saxophone. The Wikipedia article calls it hectic instrumental jazz, and it was definitely that. Most of the songs are composed by John Lurie. There are two Thelonious Monk tracks and Harlem Nocturne by Earl Hagen, which was the soundtrack to the old Mickey Spillane TV show. This is all atmospheric stuff. And it's John Lurie on sax. It's his brother Evan Lurie on keyboards. But what really makes this hectic is Ardo Lindsay on guitar. Now, I mentioned James Blood Ulmer a few weeks ago. Ardo Lindsay is like James Blood Ulmer multiplied by 12. It, sometimes it's just he's just playing these crazy chords that sound like the guitar is out of tune, but it gives an atmosphere that really makes this music stand out. The Lounge Wizards didn't have a very long career. Laurie has had health issues, apparently chronic Lyme disease, so he doesn't play music anymore. They released a couple of albums in the 80s, and then they did some more in the 90s, and they've been more or less forgotten, and it's unfortunate because this was just a killer album. I will note that it was on EG Records, which is the label of King Crimson, and it was produced by Tio Massaro, who produced Miles Davis. So, Lounge Wizards by the Lounge Wizards. Doug, do you have an antidote to disco? I sure do. It's Frank Zappa, of course. Uh, Zappa Records has recently released the limited edition CD box set of the 1977 Halloween shows at the Palladium in New York. Now, if you're a Zappa fan, you know that Mother's Day and Halloween are the two big dates on the calendar. These are remastered vault recordings of the three nights, six shows that had been filmed and released as the movie Baby Snakes. Maybe you're familiar with it, uh, which is an okay concert movie, actually. These concerts contain music that um, he was working on that would eventually appear on the Shake Your Booty album two years later, like City of Tiny Lights, Flakes, uh, Dance and Fool, his disco parody, coincidentally, and, and of course, a number of other audience favorites like Peaches on Regalia and Muffin Man and Camarillo Brillo and things like that. This is a great band. This is a famous band that Zappa had, notably uh, with Adrian Ballou on guitar, Terry Bozio on drums. This was a period where Zappa was starting to get, um, people, people were paying more attention to him. And at the time, as I mentioned earlier in this show, there was a lot of diverse music being released, disco, Euro disco, punk, corporate rock, and Frank does parodies of all these sorts of music. So it's six performances, 
not all the same. Uh, he's kind of like the Grateful Dead that way. You never know exactly what songs you'll get from show to show. So I'm looking forward to uh, getting into this. It's Frank Zappa, Halloween 77, live at the Palladium, NYCNY. And it's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.